listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. As if local tensions weren't sufficient, Emma Goldman and her business manager, Ben Reitman, arrived in May on a lecture tour. Goldman was by now a notorious radical celebrity beloved by those sympathetic to her various causes, which included anarchy and birth control, but despised by the rest of the country. They were met at the train by a vigilante mob but protected by real sympathizers and police. But that night, Reitman was abducted, taken to an isolated location, stripped, tarred, and branded with IWW. The city of San Diego asked for federal help. President Taft declined but publicly denounced the IWW. The city allowed the vigilantes, and they intensified their terrorist attacks, and within Weeks, most of the IWW members had been jailed or chased away. IWW next act the successful coordination in 1912 at Lawrence, Massachusetts, of the famous Bread and Roses textile strike, one of the more disciplined labor action in the nation's history. Lawrence was a model manufacturing town, its various large mills hugging both sides of the Merrimack River, Lawrence by 1912, offered a kind of snapshot of urban industrial America, with almost 90% of the workers and residents immigrants. Italians, Slavs, Belgians, Portuguese, Germans, or French Canadians, the town was a melting pot. The strike was set off by an announcement from the town's largest employer, the American Woolen Company, or better known as AWC, that in response to a new law, Shortening the work week from 56 to 54 hours, all laborers would be forced to accept a weekly pay cut. The textile work ranked among the lowest paid in the country. Mill employees at Lawrence earned between $3 and $6 a week. By comparison, still workers in Pennsylvania earned almost $14 a week. Even Lawrence garbage men received $12 a week. The companies said cuts had to be done as other mills in other states would have a competitive advantage, the local IWW started organizing and asked the National for help. On Friday, January 12, the day the first pay envelopes reflected the pay cuts, workers marched out of the AWC's Washington Mill crying short pay. They headed to other mills nearby and shouting strike and demanding other workers come out. Some of the demonstrators stormed into mills to roust their fellow workers, then burned looms and other equipment. At the wood mill, one of the town's largest guards responded to the invasion by shutting off the power. Someone then set off the emergency sprinkler system in front of the duck mill. The massing strikers cheered impromptu speeches of defiance made by fellow workers, then threw rocks and coal and even their lunch pails at the mill's windows. 
Part of the cause for the reaction of the workers was a simmering hatred for the owner, Billy Wood, who had set up a bonus system that paid employees extra for meeting manufacturing quotas. This increased production. The wood mill alone processed a million pounds per week into fabric, but such gains involved stricter rules for workers and speeding up the looms. Their opinion of the Lawrence Town Fathers was not much higher. What was touted as a model industrial city, they subsisted in rickety wooden tenements, slums so crowded that on some blocks there was as many as 600 people to an acre. Enduring poor sanitation and lethal rates of disease such as dysentery, measles, and scarlet fever, among other diseases. The town had been conceived in the same exemplary spirit as Lowell, but Lawrence bonded mutual regard between employer and workers was by 1912 little more than historical legend. The disconnect between the town's boasterish self-image and the reality as lived by the workers extended to Billy Wood, who chose to take his employees' rebellion as a personal betrayal. Wood notified the strikers, Last week, many of you left our mills and have remained away. This action was wholly a surprise to me. You sent me no notice of what you were intending to do, and you stated no grievances and made no demands. I learned from the papers that the reason for your staying away is that the company paid you for only 54 hours work. He did not respond to the workers' demands for a 15% pay increase double pay for overtime, and into the premium pay for sped-up production, and a promise that no strikers would be terminated for their actions. The call from Lawrence, IWW had brought New York-based organizer Joseph Etter to town. Etter had visited Lawrence the year before and was familiar with the basic issues separating workers from the mill owners. He arrived prepared for a long stay, lugging his personal effects and a suitcase full of IWW literature. Like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Etter, 26, was something of a wobbly natural raised on radical lore. In contrast to the brawling and vandalism that had characterized the first days of the strike, Adder counseled discipline and nonviolence. Simply staying out of work was the best weapon, he advised, particularly after the militia arrived to guard the mills. I want you all to understand that the cause cannot be won by spilling blood, he told the workers. Peaceful persuasion is the only weapon advocated from this platform. Etter saw that the mills exploited the workers' ethnic division, so one of the first tasks was to assemble relief committees with representatives from all the city's ethnic groups in order to keep strikers and families fed. The Massachusetts governor, Eugene Foss, had sent in the state militia almost at once, and the soldiers and strikers faced off daily. In the freezing morning of January, outside the Prospect Mill, when the militia turned a powerful fire hose on a crowd of thinly clad demonstrators, the strikers were furious at the tactic, one they believed was intended not to disperse them, but to drench them and make them deathly ill. Later, some soldiers jabbed at striking women and children with their bayonets. Governor Foss suggested a month-long truce. The owners were all for it, mainly to get the looms working again. 
but the IWW rejected the offer, not wanting to lose momentum. When in a meeting, Mayor Scanlon accused Utter of stirring up local antagonism, the Wobbly replied, I am not responsible for what men do when they have been downtrodden, when their faces have been ground into the dirt so that they no longer resemble human beings. We have had strikes, the mayor explained, but we never had to call the police to suppress disorder, let alone send for people of other cities to help us and employ the militia, at which Etta replied, I shall stay here and do what I can for these people. A sentiment echoed by the strikers on a broadside. Our enemies are making an effort to blind the issue by making a cry of foreigners, rioters, to which we may reply we are not considered foreigners when we meekly consent to being robbed of our labors and opportunities. We were considered good citizens as long as we were traitors to our best interest. Edder also brushed away rumors that the IWW would resort to the use of dynamite to win the strike. Quote, Tell the people not to believe them. Tell they hear the explosions. On January 20th, Lawrence police swept into the city's tenement and seized three stashes of dynamite together with various fuses and percussion cups. The discovery of the dynamite started fresh rumors of professional dynamiters on the loose, rumors of Target Mills police stations, the Army, and even Billy Wood's home. The feeling that the strike could be won, especially on January 24th when Bill Haywood arrived, he was carried to the speaker's platform in Lawrence Common, where he proclaimed, there is no foreigners here except the capitalists. Within a week, the Lawrence strike was transformed by tragedy. The trouble began in the early morning hours of January 29th, when workers used ice and rocks to smash windows on streetcars carrying scabs to the mills along Essex Street, the town's main drag. Later that afternoon, as day turned to winter dusk, Strikers renewed their protest, engaging in a verbal scrimmage with police in the vicinity of the Abbott Mill. Some workers began hurling snowballs, icicles, and chunks of coal toward the officers, who suddenly rushed the mob. In the tumult, a gunshot was heard, and Anna Liposa, a 33-year-old mill worker, fell to the street dead, shot through the chest. That same night, John Breen, an undertaker who was an ex-alderman and son of a popular former Irish mayor was arrested, accused of planting the dynamite found days earlier in what now it was evident had been an attempt to frame the strikers and the IWW. It appeared Breen had wrapped one of the stashes of dynamite in a funeral trade magazine from which he had neglected to remove the milling label from his own business. The next day, January 30th, an 18-year-old Syrian named John Ramy and his friends threw ice at a group of militiamen who gave chase. One of the troopers poked Ramy with his bayonet, attempting to stop the boy's flight, but the wound was fatal. When residents demanded the militiamen be detained by police, the city marshal was incredulous. Quote, Arrest him? Why? You can't arrest a soldier for doing his duty. The policeman then arrested Edder, accusing him of involvement in the death of Anna Lepizzo, and then arrested Arturo Giovanetti on the same charges. Neither men had been present when Lepizzo was killed, 
Both were held as accessories before the fact for having incited the demonstrators. Giovannati had joined the strike effort at Eder's request a few days before in order to assist with the relief operations. Giovanni, a poet, reading a poem to Lawrence workers, quote, Capitalism is the same here as in the old country. Nobody cares for you. You are considered mere machines, less than machines. If any effort is made to improve your lot and to raise you to the dignity of manhood and womanhood, that effort must come from yourselves alone. Unquote. For Adder, a man steeped in the Haymarket case, his and Giovanetti's arrest offered a close parallel to the allegations against Parsons and spies in 1886, including the detail that the person suspected of committing the crime was unknown and nowhere to be found. The IWW lost no time in denouncing the arrests. Haywood arrived in Lawrence with $750 from donations received in New York on the night he left for Lawrence. At one meeting with strikers, some Italian workers came forward with an interesting suggestion. In Italy, they explained, workers engaged in lengthy standoffs with employers and had sometimes sent their children to another location in order to lessen the economic burden on their families. None of the Lawrence organizers were aware ever having been done in America, but they saw at once its potential usefulness. Not only would a children's exodus lighten the load on the striking mill workers, many of whom had four or five extra mouths to feed, it would command headlines calling greater national attention to their plight. The power of children to garner sympathy for labor had been convincingly demonstrated in 1903 by Mother Jones. Notes were posted in East Coast cities and the response was overwhelming. On Saturday, February 10th, the first train departed Lawrence for New York City with 119 children between the ages of 2 and 12, chaperoned by Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Margaret Sanger, the socialist reformer and birth control advocate, among others. Sanger, who was there helping with the children, later testified before a congressional committee investigating the Lawrence strike that of the 119 children who arrived on February 10th, Many were sick, emaciated. Only 20 had coats. No more than four wore underwear, and very few had hats, most having to protect their ears from the cold by wrapping a scarf around their heads. Volunteer doctors in New York declared many malnourished, noting that in some instances, children of seven or eight years of age were so undergrown as to appear to be only four. The Times reported the kids were taken to a, a union hall where a meal had been prepared for them. They ate and ate and ate until they could eat no more. They have never had so many warm, comfortable clothes. 120 pairs of small hands have been covered with as many pairs of warm black mittens, and all the children who needed them had been given sweaters. A four-year-old girl from a French family in Lawrence was particularly charming to her New York host, throwing her arms eagerly around the neck of anyone she met, declaring, I love you. When the IWW announced that there was another 1,000 strike waifs needing homes, the city elders were angry and accused the IWW of using kids as 
a publicity stunt saying there was no reason to move the kids. But it was noted that when the children quit school to go to work in no city officials or local business owners complained or made accusations of neglect. On the morning of February 24th, a group of 46 children was assembled at the railroad depot to board the 7-Eleven AM train to Boston from where they were to go on to Philadelphia. Town Marshal John J. Sullivan had insisted the previous day that no more children were to be sent from Lawrence, citing an order issued by the city government. The legality of the city's edict was dubious, and the IWW had made sure to obtain the parents' written permission for the children who'd be departing. Some parents had come along to the station when they learned that Bill Haywood himself would be among the chaperones. As the train arrived, however, police suddenly filled the platform and attempted to corral the children. When one of these big burlies would lay hands on a child, of course, it would scream. Haywood recalled, and its mother would fly to the rescue of her captive young. The mothers tried to push the police away. The hysterical screams of the crazed women and the piteous cries of the frightened children resounded through the train shed reported the Lawrence Tribune. Several women were arrested and loaded with their children onto trucks for transport to the jail. No children were allowed to board the train. The news of the arrest spread instantly and a crowd swarmed the jail. The crowd yelled at the police who took down anyone who tried to intervene with trenchants. The Lawrence police had shown their mail that they were not spineless but as public relations, the arrest of little children and their mothers proved disastrous. The New York Tribune termed the cops' interference as chuckle-headed an exhibition of incompetence to deal with the strike situation, as it is possible to recall. While the New York Sun warned precedent of authority placing an embargo on the movements of residents of an American community, President Taft was moved to order the Justice Department to make inquiries, while Congressman Victor Berger of Wisconsin called for a congressional hearing and the Metropolitan Opera star Enrico Caruso announced a benefit concert for the Lawrence families. As the strike was about to enter its third month and all the neg negative publicity about their children's exodus tilting public opinion in favor of the strikers, American Woolen agreed on March 12th to negotiate. Improvements in hours and benefits were granted. Wages were increased by between 5% and 25%, depending on the job. New adjustments were granted for overtime, and the mills agreed to rehire the strikers. Immediately, many other textile mills in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, eager to head off labor trouble, and conscious about what just played out in Lawrence fell in line with the AWC's realignments. Haywood told a crowd of strikers, You, the strikers of Lawrence, have won the most single victory of anybody of organized working men in the world. You have won the strike for yourselves, yes. You are the heart and soul of the working class. You have won over the oppressive power of the city, state and national administration against the opposition of the combined forces of capitalism. 
The workers deserved Haywood's praise, but so did the IWW, which now claimed 16,000 grateful members in Lawrence alone, a remarkable achievement considering that the, that the strikers were tens of thousands of immigrants, unskilled and of various ethnic groups. Fate of the IWW leaders Joseph Etter and Arturo Giovanotti, along with mill worker Joseph Caruso, was set to be decided in nearby Salem on September 30, 1912. The three went on trial for conspiracy in the murder of Anna Laposa. The defense was able to establish that the state had used detectives to spy on the IWW in cross-examination, exposed the fact that one of these detectives, a key prosecution witness, was unable to translate the most basic Italian, even though he quoted Giovanotti, who barely spoke English, as having made threatening statements. In stark contrast, the defense witness, men, women, and even teenage mill workers who testified in a variety of accents, reported that far from urging destruction, Adder and Giovanotti had consistently admonished the strikers to, quote, keep your hands in your pockets, unquote, and reassured them that their best hope for winning the strike lay in remaining nonviolent. On November 16th, after 56 days of testimony, all three defendants were acquitted. Onlookers wept and applauded. The IWW came out of New England after Adder and Giovanotti acquittals, competent and much admired. In early 1913, it set its sights on repeating the Massachusetts victory in its aid to strikers by immigrant silk workers at Peterson, New Jersey. Peterson was another planned town like Lowell, and like Lowell, maybe tied as the most historical mill town. Built around the powerful 77-foot-high Great Falls of the Mosaic River, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton called it a national manufactory. This dream town was never built, but proved to be a good location by the late 19th century. It had even developed its own anarchist subculture. Gatana Bresco sailed to Europe on July 29, 1900, assassinated Italy's King Humbert I. In 1913, the local silk industry employed a quarter of the town's 120,000 residents. Skilled workers made less than $12 per week, the unskilled about $7. Because more women and children worked, they could be paid less. Some companies moving to Pennsylvania meaning less jobs and new loom technology had been introduced that called for workers to manage more equipment for the same pay threatened to drive pay downward. On January 27th, 800 workers walked out of the Doherty Mills after the whole grievance committee was fired for protesting the attempted change from two looms to three and four looms. Walkouts continued, and by March 3rd, as many as 25,000 were out, affecting 300 mills. The workers demanded a reduction of the workload, an eight-hour day, and $12 minimum weekly pay as well as overtime pay. The IWW was not at its best having just finished a smaller labor campaign that had not gone well in New York just that winter. This was a strike by the 
International Hotel Workers Union, local, which had broken away from the AFL and appealed to the IWW to leave them. Podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <laughs> <laughs>